Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. Whether you're joining us for the first time or this is your 116th episode with us, we welcome you and glad that you're here. Uh, we at the Asian Americans have partnered with McDonald's to present the We Are APA series all month to support and uplift diverse stories within the Asian Pacific American community. Today, we share the story through this podcast of Emmanuel Han, one of the two photographers who helped us capture the beautiful photos, words, and voices of our We Are APA uh, guests. Emmanuel, out here based in Los Angeles, captured the photos and stories of Steve Kim, Mike McPayo, and Georgina Pasquaguin. So be sure to stick around to the end of the episode so we can hear all about Emmanuel's experience with McDonald's globally and why he is so passionate about using his gift of photography to share our Asian American stories. Thanks to McDonald's and to IW Group for the support of this episode. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Emmanuel Han. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And we are still celebrating and commemorating Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And so let's celebrate all of us. And as we continue to deal with challenging news coming up from all over the world. Let's also think about what it means to be globally Asian and, and think about our brothers and sisters who are in situations and in conflict that might be really hard for us to understand. But we also must uh, think about our identity and our community from a more global perspective, because we all have family, we all have friends uh, from back home or friends and colleagues whose lives are being directly impacted by the continued COVID crisis in India the conflict in Palestine, and so many other stories that we probably don't even hear about, depending on where we get our news. And so if you've been with us for May, and if you are following us on Instagram, you know very well by now that we've been very fortunate and blessed to uh, partner with McDonald's as part of the We Are APA campaign as we celebrate through photos, through words, and through audio, the wonderful stories of eight people through seven stories, one being a mother-son duo of Asian Americans that we thought that our, our guests here, our wonderful friends at McDonald's and our really amazing trusted partners at IW Group, thought that we needed to amplify Asian American stories that we don't often hear about. And so really, really honored and just so excited to have you meet one of the two men behind the photo series. They split their duties East and West Coast as travel, as you can imagine, is not the, uh, the smartest thing to do. And so here joining us today and to learn a little bit more about him and the process and the folks that he photographed and, and told his stories of this month is Emmanuel Hahn joining us here from LA. Hi, Emmanuel. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm, I guess I'm also taking it all in the launch of the McDonald's campaign. I'm also working on a few other projects, projects at the same time. So yeah, it's pretty hectic, but I'm glad it's Friday. I'll take some time off this weekend. I need some self-care. So yeah, that's how I'm doing. So to give folks context, we're, we're recording this on the 14th of May. And so today we share the story. Actually, let's go back. And, and you know, on, on Wednesday, we share the story of, of Steve Kim from Project Kinship. And I, I think his story is just so fascinating and, and so wonderful. And more than anything, a story that we don't really hear too much of or even celebrate, you know, being sort of in our in our universe. I think we have a very idealistic view of successful Asian Americans or we only want to celebrate and highlight those who fit a particular narrative that makes us feel comfortable. But we know that not to be the case. 
in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to hear and or I guess see your stories from two additional amazing folks, both here in Southern California. So, and, and you're doing an amazing photo series of people that we see every day, the business owners of, of Koreatown, whose stories are often rarely ever told or even photographed because they're just so busy running their businesses, trying to survive. And, and, and sadly, not very many people ask them to share their story, but there's so much of our identity and our culture baked into those. So we're going to learn all about you today. And let's start with that. You have a very unique American story. And so really excited to, to share, uh, or I guess ask you about your journey. How did your family, how did the Han family become Asian American? And then tell us about the early years of your life. The Han family has a very complicated history. So my parents, both my parents are from the city of Daegu in South Korea. In their 20s, they moved to Saipan, also known as the Northern Mariana Islands, which is a U.S. territory. Back in the day, a lot of Korean and Japanese tourists would go to Saipan for their honeymoons. And my dad worked in the tourism sector. And that's how our family ended up in Saipan. And that's where I was born. And as a as someone who was born in a U.S. territory, that's how I became an American citizen. But the funny thing is none of my other family members are American because they were all born in South Korea. So in my family, I'm the only one who is American, or I guess you could say Korean-American. My parents are both still Korean. My oldest brother is of Korean citizenship, and my middle brother is actually Singaporean because he served in the military in Singapore. And to explain how that happened, in 1994, my parents, or I guess my dad, lost his job because his company closed and the economy was just really bad in South Korea. And my parents both decided to become missionaries. And so they you know, packed up all our stuff. We moved to Singapore so that my parents could go get training. My, my dad wanted to learn Mandarin because he wanted to work in China. And that was the reason why we all moved to Singapore. And after studying at a school and graduating, the church that my parents were a part of decided to send them to Cambodia instead. And so when I turned eight, our family moved to Cambodia and my dad started a school. My mom ran a kindergarten and my middle brother and I lived there with our with our parents. We would go to a local school in the mornings where we would learn Mandarin and Khmer or Khmer. And, and then we would come home and our parents would homeschool us in English and Korean. And that's how we lived for about four years. When I turned 12, my parents decided that my brother and I should get a better education. So they basically flew us back to Singapore, rented out an apartment for us, enrolled us in school, and then left us. And they went back to Cambodia to continue their work. So from the ages of 12, my brother was 13. We grew up, the two of us, by ourselves in Singapore, where we went to school, took care of ourselves. My oldest brother at this point was old enough for college. So he moved to South Korea for, for med school in Busan. So that's kind of the short version of my family's history. And for me, because I was born in Saipan, I had a U.S. passport and I was a U.S. citizen. And so even from a young age, I knew I would 
come to the States for college. That was always the plan. And in middle and high school, I always wanted to live in New York. That was kind of like my dream. I was enamored by the city, the cosmopolitan city. And actually in high school, I, my dream was to work at the World Bank, which is very typical of kind of like international families. And yeah, so I had my sights set on a university in New York. I ended up attending NYU for business school. I studied finance at Stern. And then after graduating, I worked in tech for about two years. At that point, I think I, I just knew I had to do something creative because I wasn't happy with what I was doing at that point. So I, I worked really hard for two years after college and I was just like obsessed with like paying down debt. So like I paid off all my student loans. Not that I had that much to begin with. And the moment I was done paying, I kind of like sat back in my chair in the office. And then I was thinking to myself, like, why am I still here? You know, like I hate this job and I should, you know, do something that I care about. And so I gave myself a one-year timeline to try out photography. And the idea was that if that didn't work out, I could always go back to corporate life. And, you know, I had extensive experience in that area. And, well, that was five years ago, and I'm still here taking photographs and telling stories. Yeah, so that's kind of my journey. That's wonderful, man. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag about you for a second because I don't know how comfortable you're about bragging about yourself so you you've taken photos for obviously mcdonald's we're working together on this uh walmart we work tiffany google parachute Lancome, bloomingdale's clinique and have been featured in uh, globally recognized publications like the new york times forbes HuffPost, the atlantic vice buzzfeed i mean th this is so you made the right decision obviously and, and sticking to photography and the world agrees and at least your clients agree the ones that you know hire you to do these things. I, I want to go back a little bit and just sort of hope to understand sort of where the inspiration to to become a photographer was, because I think you have an extremely unique background and having having spent your teenagers as you as you shared on your own and having your parents' occupation really be nomadic in nature, but also not something that too many folks grow up into, sort of in the in the family business, if you will. What were some of your earlier influences as you were, you know, growing up as, as a teenage boy? And where did photography come into your life to have you dream? That's what you might want to do professionally one day. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the school that I went to in Singapore was very professionally driven. And if you know anything about the Singaporean education system, it's very competitive, much like other Asian countries. And they're very geared towards the sciences and math. And and the, the school that I went to didn't even have an art program. And actually very few Singaporean, I guess, secondary and high schools actually have an art program. I think there was like five kids in the art program in the high school that I went to. And, you know, like they weren't ostracized, but like people just didn't know that they existed because everyone was in the math and sciences. And I, you know, didn't even have a camera in high school. I actually got my first camera when I was moving to the States because my brother was dabbling in photography and he had this DSLR and he was going into the Singapore military at that time. So he gave me his camera to, you know, document my journey in, in New York and, you know, to keep my family posted on what was going on. And so that's kind of how it first started for me. And I guess I, I do have to give all the credit to my brother because he gave me the tools to actually start 
photography. In, in high school, my life was totally different. I think the one thing that I can point to is I was in the humanities program, which was also very rare for the school that I was in. I think less than 5% of the high school population took a humanities track. I think that was a very pivotal moment in my life because I was exposed to philosophy, English literature, economics, and my, my teachers were wonderful. They really opened my world to the idea of storytelling through the subjects that I was learning. And if I go back even further, I think living in all these different places really opened my eyes to what the world was like. In Cambodia, when we went, it was one of the poorest countries in the world, and it still is. But we went in at a time when the country had just opened up. And so there were all these riots going on. There was a lot of political instability. Our neighbor was assassinated. There was just crazy things happening like that. And obviously, we were surrounded by a lot of poverty. And it's not like our family was rich by any means, but in comparison, we were very privileged. And then from going from a place like that to Singapore, where it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world, one of the most advanced modern societies in the world, where I was almost kind of in the opposite position, where I was poor in relation to my peers and my surroundings. It really gave me this perspective of the, the wide spectrum of human experience. In one country that's only two hours away, you have people starving. In, in another country like Singapore, they're talking about nonstop GDP growth, you know? So those were the things that I was exposed to as a kid. And I think it just made me, one, just appreciate the fact that everyone comes from a different place. And two, that there are just all these stories that people hold. I guess what it did was it developed a curiosity in me to just want to get to know people and beyond trying to get to know people, understand systems, understand governments and economies, and really try to understand why things are the way they are. And I think that's the thing that has consistently guided me in just my life, but also my work, because I'm always curious about like, how did things become the way they did? So when I came to America, it was weird because I felt like I had to learn to be American, right? Because I lived 20 years of my life outside of the US and I came to New York for the first time as a 20-year-old attending NYU. And yes, I had been exposed to American culture through TV and the press in general, but like living in the States was a completely different experience. And on top of that, living in a city like New York, which is one of a kind, but I remember like going to college and the first thing that people would say is as a greeting was like, hey, how's it going? And then I would try to explain like how it was going. I would try to explain like, oh, you know, like it's, I did this and this, but I didn't realize people were just saying hi, like they didn't expect a response. So those are like some of the small things where I was just like, oh my God, I feel like such a noob. Um, like, what am I doing? You know, like fish out of water. And I think that was one of my first experiences of like being American. And I mean, there was just so many things like, like when people would ask me, where I was from, you know, like I wouldn't get offended, but instead I'll be like, do you have 20 minutes? Cause it's a long story. Like to actually tell you where I'm from would mean that I have to explain this whole thing that I just explained to you. And at a certain point, it just became so exhausting to have to do that all the time. And, you know, people like 
don't know where Singapore is. They're like, oh, is that China? Like, how is living in China? Like, why is your English so good? Like, how do you speak English so well without realizing that Singapore is one of the most, you know, advanced in terms of education? Everyone speaks English in Singapore. And not only that, Singapore is one of the most multicultural, multiracial, you know, city-states in the world. So I was exposed to all sorts of people from different backgrounds in school. And so in, in a sense, I think all of those experiences allowed me to be very adaptable when I moved to the States. And so in, in a sense, it was like being a chameleon. And I feel like I've been that way my entire life, just going into a new, new situation, perceiving things very quickly, and then picking it up and taking it on as like part of my identity. Emmanuel, I am being blown away because I, I, I think I, I could sense a little bit of just the fact that you moved around a lot as a child and didn't really feel like anchoring was something that I thought about. But all those experiences actually made you the best storyteller that the world could have asked for because you got to experience and to build empathy and to see things from a different perspective. Being Korean in America, yes, but in an extremely unique part of America, technically a territory and do having spent years in Singapore. And so, you know, I, I think the moment met you. And I think what I'm hearing is that you have the gift of perspective and nuance that many people, certainly uh, many Americans don't get because we have a very singular perspective of what even Asian American is in this country. And for myself, I was born in Korea, came here when I was eight. So I feel very lucky to at least have my duality of views of seeing things from this perspective and that perspective and seeing where I can differ. I think a lot of the things that plague our community today really come from this source of just seeing the world in one way and being unapologetically stubborn. And yet here you are just, that's, that was the gift to something that I think you may have not wanted to admit was a, a gift to you now gives you the opportunity to ask questions or to relate to people. Right. And, and I want to brag on you more. If you, if you go to Emmanuel's Instagram page, which is Hanbo, you are doing something amazing that just got me so emotional when I first saw it, which is you go to businesses in Koreatown here in Los Angeles. You ask about them. You take photos for them, both in the moment of them working, but also them just standing there and smiling. And we may talk about that part of our community where we see them but we don't right because they're the ones who serve us food when we go out they're the ones that are shopkeepers and as we lead our very busy lives and as privileged as we are sometimes we forget that they too have a story and when when like how did that come about because there's obviously the the professional side of things and, and we brag about all the photos that you take and you know, that's work. But this other stuff that you're doing is meaning. And I don't, I, I dare say that for some, you might be the first person that walks in through a door and ask them to tell their story, ask them to take photos of themselves because survival is top of mind for them. And you're trying to get at the intersectionality of intergenerational entrepreneurship and the struggles, most of the stories that you tell are businesses of business or stories of businesses being handed down to the next generation or the struggles that are involved with that. 
how did that came into your mind and, and what you've learned? Man, there's so much to cover, but I, I agree with you. I think the one thing that I've realized about America as a country is people are unable to see things from more than one perspective often. And that's why you have the left and the right. You have you know, the liberals and the conservatives, and everyone is so stuck on defending their position instead of being open to a new perspective. And the way that I grew up, I was forced to be in positions where multiple perspectives had to live together and people could still live around that, right? Like if you consider a place like Singapore, where there are Chinese, Malay, Indians, Eurasians, where they speak four or they have four national languages, they have Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism. It was just a fact of life. Everyone had a different background and a belief, but they could still function together. And I think maybe I don't credit that part of my life enough, but it, it sort of like seeped into me almost like osmosis, if you will, is just that everyone, no matter what their background, they have an entitlement to their belief and you can suspend what you think is absolute truth to consider someone else's, someone else's perspective. But I think that's also only possible when societies are diverse and people are committed to making understanding a priority. And in this country where it's so vast and large and some people never even leave their states or never meet someone of a different background like ever in their lives, like it's so hard to have that understanding of someone else because they're, everyone's sort of in their bubbles. And, you know, like I will even say for myself, I do have certain beliefs that lean left and I have very strong opinions about things. And sometimes it's hard for me to see the other side, but I think I try always, especially when I'm in the presence of someone else, I always try to see things from their perspective. And even if, you know, we never convince the other person, like just have mutual respect. And that's, that's just kind of the way that I grew up. And I think if you look at people who've grown up in multiple multicultural countries or places, that is the norm. And unfortunately in America, that is not the case. And, you know, there's a whole host of problems that are all related. As far as this project, you know, it's funny. Like I mentioned, I lived in New York for 10 years and I moved to LA last November. And, you know, Koreatown to me as a, as sort of a Korean American, Koreatown to me was always like this beacon, not necessarily of hope, but it was this like this light in the United States, right? It's the largest Korean community in the United States. It has this cultural relevance. People talk about it. There's so much food and art that comes out of it. And I think for Korean people, whenever they visit LA, that's almost like a must go. It, it's, so, it's sort of like a way of tethering yourself to a larger community. And you know that's, that's sort of the beauty of being a Korean American is that you have this physical space that you can call your own. And I think there are very few places in America overall for a lot of different ethnic groups that exist. Um, you have Chinatowns in San Francisco, LA, New York, and you know those places serve that same function. But Koreatown to me was extra special because it was sort of a more recent invention, if you will, right? Like it really started in the, in the 70s and it's kind of become this almost larger than life neighborhood. And one of the things that 
would always catch my eye whenever I went to Koreatown were all these signages that were kind of dated. Like they look like they were from the 80s or the 90s, but there was so much charm to it. And it, in a weird way, it would remind me of my parents' hometown, Daegu in South Korea. The iconography, the graphics, the way it's just laid out, it just had this like, like it just made me have this visceral reaction to Koreatown. So initially, that was the thing that drew me into Koreatown. I wanted to document sort of these graphics almost as an art project, as a way of recording, you know, like history, because I hadn't seen anything like that. And the funny thing is I was actually looking for something like that. I was looking for a body of work on Koreatown by photographers, artists, graphic designers. And I was surprised to find that there wasn't any. And I was surprised because there's so many creative people that come out of Koreatown. You know, if you think about like artists that we listen to, like Koreatown is that birthplace, right? Because it's it's that place of struggle. It's that place where different cultures meet. It's where new culture is birthed. But I was kind of surprised to find that there wasn't any cohesive bodies of work around Koreatown. And, and I was kind of sad to, to realize that because I, I knew there was so much history behind that place and it felt like it was such a waste for it to not be recorded. And when I was driving around Koreatown last year, I could just see all these condos going up and I was like, okay, you know, times are changing. There's development coming in um, and whether gentrification is a good or bad thing that's always subjective. Um, but I, I just noticed that like, okay, things are gonna change in the next 10 years. A lot of small businesses are gonna go out of business and what's gonna happen to them if their stories are not recorded. And so that's kind of how it started. Last December, I would drive my car, I would park in like at one corner of Koreatown, like let's say Western Olympic. And then I would just walk for hours, just up and down Western or like east and west on olympic and because i'm from new york i love walking right so i just have my camera and i was just walking up and down just photographing all these exteriors and it, it came to a point where i had so many photographs of exteriors but nothing of people and i was like oh this is this is the this is totally the wrong approach i need to like get close to the actual people living and working in Town. so then i started going into some of the stores and one of the first places i went to was this place called rodeo galleria which is a mall type situation, kind of a small mall. But if you go in, it just straight up feels like the 90s. The lights are just like fluorescent, you know, everything is dated, but it's so charming. And so I would just like talk to people. But at first, people were very unhappy because one, you know, like business was bad and there was literally no one coming in. And and because I was the only one walking around, everyone would be looking at me. And so I felt very self-conscious and I couldn't get myself to do anything until I met the shopkeeper in one of the corner stores. Initially, like my excuse was I would just go in and buy like a thing every time. And every time I bought something, I would just like chat up the owner, ask her like, how's business? Like, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And then I went back like three or four times because I was still like kind of nervous about asking. And then on the fourth time, I, I talked to her and she kind of like told me this, her whole life story for like an hour and a half. And I just stood there just like nodding, like, you know, saying like the, the you know, you know how like you, you do when you're in when you're with Korean elders, and then at the end I was like, hey, do you mind if I take a photo of you? And she was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, what the? I just spent like five trips here, and you don't. Anyway, um, 
I like begged her. I was like, please just give me one photo. And then she was like, okay, fine. And she took off her mask and she was like, you have exactly one photo. So then I took that photo and, and like, thank God it came out. Um, Cause I was also shooting on film. So I wasn't sure if the light was going to work out, but I was like, I, I took that one photo. She put her mask straight back on. And then she was like, that's all you're going to get. <laughs> and thank was God it came smiling out. In it? She was smiling in it um, because, you know, I asked her to smile because um, at the end of the day, I was like, if I'm going to take a photo, then at least I get to direct you in some way. I took like photos for a good three months and I was just sitting on the photos because I wasn't sure what to do with them, honestly. Like, I didn't know if people were going to care at all. So I was just sitting on it. And the plan was to just kind of like just release the photos that I had and just kind of move on with my life. I had all these other creative projects that were on the back burner. And I started sharing like three or four of the photos. And I think people just like responded to it. They like in a way that I didn't expect at all. People were just saying like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like I live on this block, you know, a block away from whatever you just shot. And then people were just kind of relating to it in a way, in a way that, that, that made it seem like the work was important. And so I kind of decided, okay, maybe I'll do like three or four like actual establishments. And, you know, I, it was kind of haphazard. I would just kind of show up to places and I would just ask, I would just talk to them for a little bit. And by a little bit, I would mean like an hour or two each time. And then I would photograph them. And, and then I just started sharing it. And I think people just started responding to it. And there was this one place, it was the Hamburg place that I photographed. And I was there with them, with who's the owner of the shop and her daughter. And I was just talking to them. And at the end of the interview, her daughter was like, oh my God, you have no idea what this means to us because my mom has been working for over 30 years and she's never had a chance to tell her story to anyone. I realized that this was honestly true for almost everyone that I met. Like no one had someone who that no the, like no one had a chance to tell their stories for over 30 years because they were in survival mode a lot of them didn't think that their story was special at all yeah. honestly that was the biggest struggle trying to get people on board it was for me to convince them that their story mattered like i had to convince them that their story mattered before they would agree to speak to me which is wild but it is also the way that society and particularly our community has made them feel seeing them yeah. as blue collar shopkeepers mm -hmm. i have a very interesting story with estella and laura too we we befriended uh we became friends last year unfortunately they became a victims of cyberbullying by some members of our own community uh last summer if you understand the mindset the relationship and the dynamics of businesses in koreatown um, and you understand the history of koreatown particularly the la riots in saigu you understand how difficult it is for korean business owners to talk about race in america estella felt that was important and so they made some supportive statements on their instagram about black lives matter unfortunately they were then just childishly attacked and and bullied by someone from our community to say, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? It was really, really unfortunate. The way that I learned about them was that this woman then came into a Facebook group called Asian Creative Network and really in a way to find support or find backup for her, her thing, 
her, her thoughts. She said, can you believe that this business isn't doing more? And so I said, are you, are you serious? A business in Koreatown in a building that actually burned in 92 is making a pro-Black Lives Matter statement and you're going to challenge them? This became literally, Emmanuel, like a 600 uh, comment Facebook thread. It was at like 12.30 in the morning. My wife was oh, like, I just, what are you doing? Go to sleep, right? And um, and so a, a few other friends, Jason Chu, who's been on the show, Danny He, um, Don Anderson, we all sort of became friends that night because we felt that we needed to defend somebody that couldn't really defend themselves. So I, I reached out. I didn't know who it was, obviously. We just re responded or um, reached out to their uh, social account. And I said, hey, how can we help? Because um, I think this is crap and that your Yelp ratings taken a dive and all these unfortunate things. And so uh, we befriended them. Uh, we, we rallied up support um, for people to buy. They were just starting to make the humbug masks at that time. And so uh, we, we got a... You know, I, I think we ended up buying like, I don't know, 40 or 50 masks. Um, I'm pretty sure Laura cried. Um, it was my way of supporting a business. Can you, I mean, think about it. A wedding and a Hamburg business at the start of the pandemic, they're not making any money, but they had all this inventory to carry. And so, um, so it's such an ingenious move to pivot. Um, and so, uh, Went to go say hello to pick up the masks. Um, they, they were so thoughtful. Uh, she sewed uh, custom masks for my two kids that are appropriate for tiny people. Um, and and I remember uh, her telling me too just how meaningful it was, and you know, getting very teary eyed that a, a stranger uh, would not only come to their defense, and I was one of many who did that that evening. But then later turns out that. They told me that that's the only reason that's the only way they paid rent that month because wow. of the money from the masks. And so, mm. again, I, I think we, we, we go through life, um, whether you live in Koreatown, whether you uh, work, play, drink or, you know, and come to these uh, immigrant enclaves. And even now, more so as it gets more gentrified and becomes a stopping point on a, on a tourist map where the majority of people who frequent Koreatown socially are not from the community anymore. Do you respect the people who've been there, who've built the community, who, who built these businesses? Um, I, we're, we're such big supporters of, of Estella and, and Laura. There's so many of these stories, right? One, one of the, the places you feature is Gaesong Kimchi, which uh, we've been going to for years. Um, people love Myeongdong Gyoja, but do you actually know the stories of the people behind the food? Or do you just go there and and just eat and leave mm. um, because these are not large corporations. These are not venture backed chains or franchises. Th these are people that work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or at least thinking about their businesses. And it took somebody new to town to see that. And so uh, thank you for doing that. You know, I, I, I've lived in a lot of different places. I would still consider my home, my heart, Koreatown. Um, Cause that's where, uh, even though I, didn't live too many years of my life there, but that's where I feel like I, I grew up and found myself and plenty of fun nights uh, and plenty of fun nights. I don't remember, but you know, it, it does carry a special place uh, for me and, and for all of us.
and, and it's really poetic for me because I think sometimes when we have things, when we experience things, um, we really don't know what we have. And as I said, for somebody who's new to the community, nobody walks in Koreatown, dude. Nobody, you know, um, we're LA people, but we'll drive three blocks. But for you to take an interest in that and to be observant and to pay attention to the things that we don't even see because we're just busy trying to get to the next destination or it's always been there. So why look? Uh, particularly now, as COVID has closed so many of these places that were familiar to us. And when we get back to uh, life post coronavirus, a lot of these businesses won't be there anymore. Uh, we hear often about restaurants that have closed. Um, Beverly's Fundubu is one of the places that are iconic to town that is no longer. Um, and I often wonder what the legacy is, right? Because for so many immigrant parents, your kids are your legacy. But I'd argue that their own stories have to be the legacy. And and, and you're doing really a critical part in, in capturing that moment. And so... Um, that's probably one of the reasons why when they saw your Instagram and learned about you or our wonderful friends at IW group, uh, shout out to my best friend of the month, Izzy, um, and, and the rest of the team there knew that you were born to do this, which is, uh, to tell stories, uh, through photos, through interviews, through dialogue, and even through the audio medium. Um, while we do this here on the podcast in long form, uh, you, you were able to capture some of those stories, um, you know, just being there with them. Share with us how you got involved with the project. Um, how were you brought in and what made you say yes to it? I got this email from Sid, who uh, works at the agency that does work for McDonald's. And he had seen that work, the Koreatown project. And he'd also seen some of my other work, like the Mississippi Delta Chinese, the Korean Uzbeks in Brooklyn. So he kind of saw that I had this track record of telling stories of people whose stories are traditionally not covered by mainstream media. And he brought up this idea of photographing the different Asian Americans for this We Are APA project. And when I heard about that, obviously, I was very excited because McDonald's is a huge brand. Um, I you know, grew up eating McDonald's. Like I don't think there's a person in this world that doesn't know McDonald's. So I was really excited to hear that a global brand like that was willing to put resources behind telling the stories of Asian Americans and not just Asian Americans, but ones that have kind of taken their own path and have forged a unique destiny for themselves. For instance, Mike, NCAA basketball head coach, or Georgina, who's the first soloist for the New York City Ballet, or Steve, who runs Project Kinship, which is all about helping formerly incarcerated people, as well as other people who are affected by drugs and gangs and violence. Those were the stories that that I would have been curious about. So being able to not only tell their stories, but photograph them for McDonald's was honestly a great experience. What did you learn about those folks? Because at the end of the day, what we see on, on the Instagram are four photos, some words that obviously are, are synthesized, um, but you spent hours with every one of these folks, particularly in all three cases, going on their home turf, right? You, you drove out to Riverside to visit Coach Mike. You went to the kinship office. And so you got to witness them in their element, got to also meet not just them, but their work family. Um, 
what didn't make the cut and what are some things that you remember from the experience? The thing that I remember most about this experience is that ultimately everyone finds their path based on what they're interested in. I think there's a stereotype in the Asian American community that our previous generation wants wanted our generation to kind of go into something that was more traditionally successful, like being a doctor, a lawyer. And those tropes are honestly, at this point, kind of tiring, because what I've seen from photographing these people is that they had their own journeys and they followed their passions and they were able to get to where they are now. For instance, Mike had a completely different career before coaching basketball, but because he loved basketball so much, he continued to coach basketball on the side, oftentimes for free. And through, you know, a series of events just lining up for him, he got this position. And honestly, he told me that he's just living the dream. I mean, who doesn't dream of something like that, especially if you're a fan of the sport, right? And and Georgina, she came from a small town in Pennsylvania. She went to New York with a dream, like as a young girl trying to be a head soloist, that's almost like, you know, like a quintessential dream for some. And it was kind of amazing to see that they followed their passion. And I think there are many people in the Asian American community that have done that. But oftentimes in mainstream media, we're just kind of reduced to these tropes of the model minority, of people who follow the rules, of people who just do as they're told when that's not true at all. Um, Asian Americans are very daring. They're bold. They're passionate. Um, They are entrepreneurial. They take steps to do things that other people wouldn't dream of. Just the fact that there are millions of Asian American immigrants to this country, which is one of the the scariest things you can do is to go to a completely new country. I think that speaks to just how brave Asian Americans can be. I, I think your story is very unique, Emmanuel, because you consider yourself now an Asian American and sharing our stories, but um, you've lived all over the world. And, you know, you just mentioned, obviously, you know, the big M is a global brand. It is what many uh, folks outside of America actually symbolize as America itself. Um, what what does it mean for you now in context of the experiences that you've had being all over the world to be affiliated and to work with a, a logo that you grew up with? I mean, I'm sure there was a McDonald's in every single place you've lived, right? Almost. Yeah. No, well, there wasn't one in Cambodia. I'm, I'm still not sure if there is. Um... But yeah, McDonald's is a global brand. Um, my family moved around a lot. And I remember when we were living in Singapore, my parents were really busy with work. And I think one of the few times that our family would all be together was when we would go to the McDonald's um, near where we lived in Singapore. And the McDonald's in Singapore, they're nice. They're very clean, they're modern, their menu is a little bit different. And I just remember there was this one McDonald's with like a water fountain outside. And it was just one of those things that brings back a lot of fond memories of my family. And I think in some weird way, when I think about McDonald's, I think about my family in Singapore and even to this day. Yeah, definitely a unique place in my heart. I fact check while you were talking, there is no McDonald's in Cambodia. Right. Uh, Because that was another thing where when we moved to Cambodia, my brother and I, we were young, we were like eight years old and all we wanted was a burger and there wasn't any good burger places in, in Cambodia. So sometimes what my mom would do is if she was visiting Singapore, 
she would pick up burgers from McDonald's at the airport in Singapore, and she would fly over to Cambodia so that she could give it to us. Um, and we were just, you know, ecstatic when we saw the, you know, saw the, the, the bag with the big M on it. How often do our parents, especially our mothers, uh, show us their love through the language of food, whether it is mm -hmm. cooking for us or I think many of us can relate. The moment that your mom gets a whiff of anything that you like something, then it's that for the next foreseeable future, right? And always, you know, thinking about us in, in that way. And so that's that's really, really beautiful, man. Um, I, I am so excited more than anything to continue to see the work that you'll be doing and to impact our community positively and uplift the stories that are so often unheard um, through the work of your, your storytelling projects and, and your uh, gift of, of taking photos for people and of people. Help us finish out the show. We, we do it in the same way that we always have been, which is a Dear Americans letter, messages of hope, inspiration, or perspective um, based on your life experiences and the work that you've done. Um, I'll start, and if you could help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, don't be afraid to create your own path. Don't be afraid to believe in yourself and listen to your intuition. There's a lot of noise outside telling you what you should be and what you shouldn't be. But in this country, you can be anything you want. Anything you want, folks. Just got to put your mind to it and really uh, commit yourself and, and work your tail off as, as Emmanuel has done and as all of our subjects have done in, in the We Are APA series. And so honored to have had you here. Um, I'm really glad personally that our paths crossed. And again, really excited to see and continue to see the way that you impact our community. You can find Emmanuel on Instagram at Hanbo. We'll definitely put the links in the show notes and wherever you can find us. Support his work. I mean, obviously going to his Instagram and liking a photo and leaving a comment is one thing, but hire him to do work if you have opportunities. Refer him for other projects. Um, for both uh, Emmanuel and Eric, the work speaks for themselves. Uh, and so really excited to have had you on. Um, continue to stay safe. Welcome to LA, although it seems like you've been here a while. Um, and, and really, uh, really honored to have had this experience with you and, and work together on this project. So stay safe, stay healthy, and the best to you and your family, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me. Take care.